The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world, the Late Morning Program. I'm your host, Nam Ras. I'm here with uh, His Holiness, Prahladananda Swami. Amaraj, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Maharaj, there's been an overwhelming uh, amount of messages that I've gotten to have you on the podcast, and I'm so glad it finally happened. Uh, so so let's just get into a little bit about your history. Uh, how did you, very briefly, because we have a lot to cover today, but how, very briefly, how did you uh, join the Krishna Consciousness Movement and what year, uh, and how did that happen? Well, I was a student at the University of Buffalo in New York. And when I was in my junior year, I was walking along one day, and this is 1968, May of 1968, and suddenly everything changed. My whole consciousness changed. If I can add, I didn't take any drugs at that time. (laughs) It was was spontaneous. Right. I, I was going to the cemetery, because in Buffalo, the most beautiful place in the city is the cemetery. <laughs> it's the only place that has trees and a park. And I was walking along and I was looking at the buildings. They all looked like they were pastel, like out of some fairy tale. So I was quite surprised. I got to the park and I was listening to the waterfall because there's a waterfall there, a small one. And it just sounded like it was nectar. And I was looking at all the rocks, and then I realized everything was unlimited, and that there was a whole different state of consciousness that I had never experienced. And so that week, I started to read the Bible, study different books, became a vegetarian, started to study astrology, and started to practice yoga. And that went on for some time. And at the university campus, there was one devotee, Rupanugapuru, who had come there in 1968 and started to give uh, classes at the university. Not exactly classes, official classes, but he gave classes outside, which I attended. And then one of my friends, whose name was Jeffy, Jeffrey Hickey, who later on became Jagadish Prabhu, who also was oh, formerly right. sannyasi and DVC member. Uh, he told me about they had ent- they had opened a temple a couple of blocks from the university. So I went down there, and I it was a railroad shack. There was only a few devotees there, but that's I started to chant Hare Krishna, although I didn't believe that the chanting had very much power because I thought Hatha Yoga and Mystic Yoga had all the power. But I did it anyhow because it was the only temple in Buffalo, and after going down down there for some time, uh, one day I was chanting Hare Krishna with another one of my friends who I was living with who joined. And as soon as I was chanting Hare Krishna, everyone became very peaceful. Mm. I went to my friend's house, and his father and his sister were fighting with each other. But when I was chanting Hare Krishna, they suddenly made up and became friends. <laughs> 
So then I realized that as long as I was chanting Hare Krishna, I was all right. And other, every, other things could become all right. And then the only way I could do it, keep on chanting Hare Krishna, was to move into the temple. So right. then at the, beginning of, at the end of 68, I moved into the temple. And then at the beginning of 69, Shri Prabhupada, when I wrote to Shri Prabhupada, he initiated me. Wow. wow. So that was my beginning of Krishna consciousness. Okay. So I understand that you were the health minister uh, for ISKCON. Let, tell us a little bit how that happened. How did you become the health minister for the, the whole society? Well, I was teaching at the VIHE in 1987 with a number of senior devotees, Tamil Krishna Maharaj and Burjan and others. And they decided that they thought it would be good if someone taught something about health. And since I was interested in health, they asked me if I could teach us a class about health. So I studied different health modalities. When I grew up, my mother, she only had faith in what we could say alternative medicine. So I only saw a doctor maybe once or twice in my life when I was younger. Oh, wow. And mostly we went to chiropractors. And the only time a doctor came over is if I had a very high fever and I got a shot of penicillin. That was it. Of course, I had my tonsils out. Especially I wanted them out because I heard you got ice cream afterwards. <laughs> right. Other than that, I didn't know very much about allopathic doctors. Yeah. Except that uh, I did. That's it. I didn't know. I mean, mostly I, I grew up. I never got sick until I became a Hare Krishna. Mm. I mean, any serious illness. And the only time I ever got sick was when I went to India the first time. And this is 1974, first president, one of the first president's meetings. And there were 100 presidents at the approximately 100 presidents. And there was an un incompleted building, the Lotus Building. And no one really knew how to cook in India. And no one knew how to eat in India. But they told us we should just eat the food that was available and not go outside. Yeah. But anyhow, after, I guess we were there for a week, and I remember one time they asked me to cook, to make anacadasi, to make peanuts. So I, I had some idea how to cook. I was a cook, and I was a temple president. I was also cooking. So they said, how am I going to make peanuts? So they said, well, you need sand. I said, that's no problem. Where do you get the sand? They said, just dig it up from behind the building. So they said, well, that's not going to work. How are you going to get the sand from the peanuts? Oh, no, that's, that's the way you do it. You put sand in the wok, and then you put the peanuts on top. You fry the peanuts. They said, well, how do you, get the, the, how do you separate it? Oh, no, no, don't worry. You just wash them off. So they said, I don't think it's going to work. No, no, you just do it. So I did it. <laughs> There was time to wash it off. I said, this is just going to turn into mud. No, no, just add the water. <laughs> so for three hours, I was adding water, trying to wash the, the mud off the peanuts. And it was time for the offering. So I said, no, I'll just offer it anyhow. Oh, my God. So we offered it, the peanuts <laughs> with the sand, and we served it out to the devotees. So then I asked the devotees afterwards, how were the peanuts? He said, oh, they were all right. We were really hungry, but they were a little gritty. 
In other words, they tasted like they had a little bit of sand on them. <laughs> the Buddhists were hungry enough. <laughs> so we went through that for a week, and then I went outside because I was so I was so hungry. Then I got one little thing of sweets from outside, but I think they were made out of parasites. So very shortly after I ate those sweets, I got really sick. And it took me a while until I got back to the West to go to enough tropical tropical disease clinics to say goodbye to my parasites I had taken back free of charge from India. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that was my first experience of being actually seriously sick. Right. But other than that, then, at that time, because I was interested in health, then I went through the different modalities, and I realized that Ayurveda is our hometown science of medicine. So then I studied Ayurveda, and after some, I was teaching Ayurveda for eight years in Vrindavan. But after teaching it one or two times, because I was teaching it twice a year for a month at a time, and after teaching it a few times, and I really, I understood what Ayurveda meant, what, it, what the whole thing was about. Right. And I realized there was no other science that could compare to Ayurveda in terms of health. Mm. Because it's based upon our philosophy based upon reality it's based upon the fact that there's a super soul it's based upon the fact that we're, we're a soul and that the living entities within our body they're also souls and that Krishna has certain energies and they have certain properties and if you live in harmony with those properties then you become balanced and if you live out of harmony with those properties then you become imbalanced mm. And that the major element is digestion. Digestion of food, digestion of thoughts, digestion of emotions, digestion of ideas, and digestion of the con concept of who we actually are, accepting it. Accepting is a kind of digestion. We can hear theoretically, we have food, theor theoretical food, and then when we chew on it, we think about it, we follow it, we digest it, then we realize it. It becomes part of us. So digestion is a key element of health and a key element of disease. If we don't digest our food, it becomes poison. According to Ayurveda, that which you can digest is food, that which you can't digest is poison, and that which helps you digest is called medicine. Right. So uh, we can get into the, the the specifics later, but I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, so you became the health minister in 1994, you were saying, and then now you, the, a new, you're not the health minister any longer. No, they replaced it with devotee care. Uh, partly, I'm not part of devotee care because my views, we could say, didn't go coincide with the pre present uh, committee that they formed for the devotee care ministry. And as a matter of fact, I was shortly with the devotee care. Originally, the, the original devotee care committee utilized my works that I had written on, on health, on Ayurveda specifically, right. for the devotee care manual. But then that was dissolved and they formed another devotee care but that devotee care was mostly made of allopathic doctors 
who have a very uh, strict viewpoint on the world, uh, which questions about allopathic medicine and especially about the current crisis that's going on in terms of vaccines and and the origins and the treatment, etc. They did not like any questions about it. And therefore, I was not really seen as being suitable to to join their committee. Wow, interesting. So because you did not say things that they agreed with or your views were not agreeable to them, you have you are no longer on that committee or the health minister. Right. That's right. I see. Okay. Um, I guess we could start out. Uh, what were you doing previously as the health minister? What were your duties? Well, for some years, I was mostly involved in education. As I said, I taught Ayurveda right. for around eight years in the VIHE and the MIHE in Vrindavan and Mayapur. I taught in universities around the world like SMU, University of Portland, and uh, University of San Juan, and San Marcos in Peru, in Peru. So in Europe, so I was teaching Ayurveda regularly. I also became an, a certified Iyengar yoga teacher. I studied astrology. I went to the seminars of some of the top, and I studied under some of the top Ayurvedic experts in the world such as Vasant Lad and others. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, was edu- that was the educational part. We did publications. We put out a magazine called Hope This Meets You in Good Health for 20 years. I wrote a book called Hope This Meets You in Good Health, which has all the different uh, instructions that Prabhupada wrote and that with- are within our Shastra that I-, I could find about health stories about health and as well as articles that i had written for our magazine about health over the years so that book was published and i of course devotees would write to me regularly about different things and as much as i could help them i at least refer them to those devotees or those experts where i thought could help the devotees with a particular concern about their health Right. Can you kind of explain what Srila Prabhupada's instructions were on how devotees can keep good health? Well, that's because Prabhupada is always Prabhupada's always like the okay, whatever he said, you know, in a letter or in a conversation, that's what we should do. And even the whole vaccine thing, uh, Prabhupada, we'll talk about that after how Prabhupada, you know, some some say that he took a vaccine. But let's talk. Let's start out with what what his instructions were on how devotees can keep good health. Well, very simple instructions. Probably said three things are necessary for good health: cleanliness, regularity, and uh, proper diet. As Prabhupada said, if you're an elephant, you should eat like an elephant, and if you're an ant, you should eat like an ant. But if you're an ant, you try and eat like an elephant, there'll be problems. Right. And if you're an elephant, you try to eat like an ant, there'll also be problems. So, Prabhupada said our main medicine is prashad, eaten with love. And the main, oh, that's the diet. I'm sorry. The main diet is, he's probably said there are two things for health or for treatment 
of your disease. One of them, one of them is diet, the other is medicine. So our diet is prasadam, and our medicine is the holy names. And this is in line with what's called the, the major book. In Ayurveda, there are a number of books that are classical. One of them is called the Shushusa Samhita and Chakshusha Samhita, Charak Samhita, Charak Samhita, and Shushusha Samhita. Charak Samhita deals with general medicine, and Shushuta Samhita deals with surgery. So in the Charak Samhita, it says there are two things which are conducive to health. One of them is chanting the names of God purely, and the other is eating food offered to God with love. So our main disease is trying to lord it over the material nature and try to enjoy it out of lust. But we're being impelled by lust, which turns to anger in different material states of consciousness, which the major cause of disease, which is called Praga Aparad, or other causes also. Praga Aparad means uh, Pragya means intelligence and Aparad means violation or offense against. So when we're trying to enjoy the material nature and control it, as Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, we develop material nature gives us with gives us lust. And that lust turns into greed, which turns into anger, which turns into delusion, which turns into forgetfulness, which turns into loss of intelligence, pragyapara. And then we eat more than we should. We do things we shouldn't, illicit sex, gambling, speculation, meat eating, intoxication, and we get material problems because we're violating the material laws of nature. And then we get, we call it disease, lack of ease or disease. Right. So probably the four regular principles chanting the holy names with love and attention, and at the same time taking prashad with love, actually chewing the prashadam, honoring prashadam, not swallowing it, right. actually honoring it. As it says, this, the stomach doesn't have any teeth. So our main problem, the main disease in the material world is our mind, uncontrolled mind. As, as Prahlad Maharaj says in the Srimad Bhagavatam, that there's no enemy in this world except for the uncontrolled mind. And when the mind becomes a victim of lust, anger, greed, then it's called uncontrolled, and we have uncontrolled senses. And therefore we do things which are detrimental, out of harmony with the material nature, and we fall diseased. But if the mind is happy in Krishna consciousness, if it's controlled, then we can eat what's net, we can eat as Krishna says, yuktahara viharasya, yukta chesitsukaramasu, yukta svatmivodasya, yoga bhavati dukaha. The yogi doesn't eat too much or eat too little, sleep too much or sleep too little. One who's temperate and in habits of eating, sleeping, work, and recreation can mitigate the pains by practice of the yoga system. So that's possible for one who actually has a controlled mind. And for one who serves the senses, one who becomes a victim of 
the material desires and doesn't check the force of desire and anger, then he becomes it becomes his life becomes problematic with disease. Right. So Prabhupada's, Prabhupada's explanation of health was generally, as it says in the Bhagavatam, in the first canto, that the main problem in this world, in Kali Yuga, is not lack of food, lack of anything. The main thing is irregularity. Right. We don't, we don't follow the laws of nature. We don't live a regulated life. We don't eat properly. We don't sleep properly. We don't have proper relationships with others. And we're always in anxiety. That's huge. The anxiety part. Yeah, as probably writes in the Bhagavad Gita, we work not with our body, but with our mind and intelligence. So if the intelligence is not connected with Krishna and Krishna consciousness, then the mind will be seeking to after material desires to satisfy the, itself and the senses. Yeah. And the result is we'll always be in anxiety because... The material existence is compared to a fire. And if you take ghee and you throw it on the fire, then the fire may go out temporarily, but then it blazes even more, more strongly. So when we try to serve our senses and our anxieties by providing the elements of sense gratification that would gratify them, then that doesn't necessarily gratify them. Or if it gratifies them, it's only temporarily. And then the desires become even stronger. The anxiety even increases. Mm. It's only when we're actually, for instance, eating prashadam and actually remembering Krishna, tasting the prashadam, that the taste is Krishna and remembering Krishna and feeling the happiness of remembering Krishna and the, the pleasure coming from the taste, actually experiencing Krishna as the taste of the prashadam that we actually feel satisfied. And as our heart becomes purified by that spiritual satisfaction, then our desire to exploit the material nature diminishes. Because our desire to exploit begins with the tongue. Now when we have the carrot lying on our plate, offering full dandavats to us, we feel like we're the controller of the universe. And when we eat the carrot, if we try to assimilate that energy then that energy empowers us to eat more carrots and potatoes and cauliflower. And then we feel like we're the master of the universe. <laughs> right. So when that desire to exploit the material nature is transformed into love for Krishna, eating prasadam out of appreciation that Krishna has kindly given us this prasad that he himself has eaten, which has now become spiritual, and we eat out of love and with attention, then the result is it transforms our heart and our consciousness into, instead of trying to lord it over the material nature, try to serve Krishna. And that energy gets transformed into devotional service rather than to further explo ex exploitation of the material energy. This is, this is uh, according to our philosophy, of how we can, you know, increase our health, better health and things like that. But it seems like if you look at it in another way, that why would like yourself or, or, and I mean this, I mean, I had this question before I understood that you're not the health minister any longer, but how can a sannyasi without medical training advise our society on health? And it seems that what the direction it's going in now is that 
actually real doc real doctors are in the are, are are actually now the ministers of or or who are in the committee of health what's that they're on the devotee care committee right Some the devotee, right so maybe to so my question is what before you were taken out as that uh what qualified you as the health minister just just that you knew ayurveda and things like that yeah just ayurveda and uh, all, many many other modalities that are support that more or less go along with the ayurvedic conception why because that's actually medicine everything else is a concoction can you elaborate can you elaborate on that a little <laughs> well to some extent or another you know i I'll, present allopathic medicine has its position for, you know, for taking care of traumatic uh, problems for instance if someone gets run over by a truck it's probably good to go to a hospital and get emergency treatment right and put the bones back in place but dealing with actually how disease comes about and how disease can actually be cured they have no clue about it as a matter of fact they know exactly the opposite in general the, the general allopathic approach to disease has the opposite effect for that reason in america alone the third leading cause of disease officially of death i'm sorry the third leading cause of death in america is treatment either by the uh, misdiagnosis of medicine and giving prescribed medicine from prescribed medicine in other words prescribed medicine kills around 125,000 people in america every year and uh operations that went wrong kill another 125,000 patients every year allopathic treatment so that's 250,000 people a quarter of a million people are die every year officially the numbers could be way higher from allopathic treatment now if any other modality had such a death rate they would be driven out of town they would be made right. illegal but because allopathic medicine is a big money maker that's what it is it's a business it was created in the beginning of the 19th century to make money the rockefellers the carnegies they were trying to figure out how to make money for medicine because money medicine had the potential since everyone utilized it it's one of the four major things that everyone is involved in right birth death old age and disease so everyone qualifies for death everyone qualifies for disease everyone qualifies for old age and for taking birth so babies are a big boon for medicine old age is a big boon most of the old people are the ones who are the big clients of the doctors disease is a big boon and death you know then if you own them the morgue also you you got a lot of customers death is a good business everyone's eligible for it so what they did is they went around america they hired someone to go around america to find out what the current medicinal practices were and they discovered that everyone was using natural medicine especially plant-based medicine herbal medicine and they realized they weren't going to make any money from it because he, there was no question of patenting you know the the herbs that were available 
comfrey, for instance. These were not, you couldn't make a patent out of them. So they decided that we're going to cre create and manufacture our own medicine, chemical medicine. And then we're going to use our influence. What they did is they went to all the big medical schools and they said, we really want to give you a lot of money because you're doing a good job. So we're going to give you, you know, millions of dollars as grants for your medical college. The only thing we request that you put one of our members on your board. So they say, sure, a good deal. We'll, we'll be happy to have you on our board, one of your members. So they put the member on the board and after a while, then they changed the curriculum from natural medicine to, to chemical medicine. And gradually they infiltrated the medical schools and had as a curriculum pharmaceuticals rather than nutraceuticals or other kinds of medicines. And then due to their influence in government, they passed laws, these were referring to the very wealthy people who were trying to monopolize the medical industry. They passed laws that this other medicine, herbal medicine was quackery and outlawed it. And that the only bona fide medicine was going to be chemical medicine. So this was now taught at the colleges, chemical medicine, herbal medicine, other medicine was outlawed, only chemical medicine was authorized, publicized. Whatever, whether bona fide or not, for instance, if you go back even to the time when I was younger, they were advertising that smoking, maybe that was in the 20s actually, smoking is actually good for your health. They had all the doctors, Making, giving testimonials, all the politicians that if you smoke, then you know you'll get rid of all your problems. <laughs> and then, of course, whatever crazy, whatever problems that came about by their pharmaceutical medicines, either they just you know it was an accident, like there was some medicine I can't remember it was. Uh, Theridomide or theridomide or something. They were giving it to pregnant women, and their children were coming out with all kinds of birth and abnormal abnormalities. Right. You know, and that was just no problem, just covered over. Although it made headlines in some very newspapers, but generally speaking, whatever the allopathic industry comes up with, like recently in America. They had opioid pandemic. Literally hundreds and thousands of Americans were becoming addicted to opioids because the pharmaceutical company that was manufacturing or the companies were paying doctors to prescribe it. And they were saying it's safe and effective. And people were taking it, not realizing they were going to get addicted to this the new opioids that came about. There's one which is supposed to be, I forget the name of it, much more potent than heroin. And uh, anyhow, people got addicted to it. A lot of people committed suicide. They lost all their money, their jobs and everything. And there was a suit against them and they paid you know, five or something billion dollars in claims, but they had made, you know, $100 billion, so they just write it off as the cost of business. 
even at the cost of the, the lives and the welfare of the people that they're so-called treating. Right. It seemed that Srila Prabhupada had so many kind of health issues and crises even in his time as the Acharya. How did he kind of approach those health issues? Like what help, what help did he accept from uh, doctors and from medicine? Well, at the beginning, Prabhupada was, as we know the history, Prabhupada was, became, when he arrived in America, he was around seven years old. He had apparently two heart attacks when he was on the Jaladuta coming over to America. And more or less during that time, he followed his diet the best he could in America. He, uh, but his main emphasis was on preaching establishing the Krishna consciousness movement. If he wanted to be healthy and live longer, coming to America probably wasn't the best thing for him. Because he came here, he wasn't used to the climate. Food was apparently not as big a problem as he thought it was going to be. But he had to go through a good deal of austerity. And then, of course, when the movement started to become established, and he was traveling quite a bit, even in his old age, older age. But he tolerated. In one sense, he tried to show, he, especially in the beginning, probably gave instructions to his disciples how to take care of his health, how to take care of their health, because they had no other person to turn to. He gave, but he himself, Sometimes he wasn't so strict about his diet, nor was he so strict about living a regulated life. He put the best, the first emphasis upon preaching. And therefore he put that in the forefront. But at the same time, he was transcendental. And therefore, although he manifested sometimes his condition of becoming sick for the benefit of his disciples, so he could be taken care of properly, they could do some service. But at the same time, he also showed a tolerance for the sake of spreading the, the tolerance, tolerance of his own personal physical problems that he was going through, so he could keep on carrying on his preaching and spread the Sankirtan movement. At the same time, he didn't expect younger devotees to neglect their health. When he saw in Los Angeles that some devotee, one lady, didn't have, was sneezing and coughing, and other devotees were also sneezing and coughing, he became concerned, and he asked them if they had proper clothing. Right. And he said that you have to take care of your health, otherwise how you push on the Hare Krishna movement. P just to interrupt you for a second, devotees use that story as a way to say, okay, we have to take care of our health. We need to take the vaccine. We need to uh, fight against this huge, you know, virus that's coming, that's, you know, been ravaging the whole world. So what would you say to that? I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, in the sense of this is what's presented to us as a solution for, for this uh, COVID-19, the vaccine. And so as devotees, we need to take care of our health. Shri Prabhupada told that lady, you know, that disciple, you need to take care of yourself. You need to cover up. We need to get healthy. So what would you say to that? Well, I think covering up is one thing. 
jumping to an experimental vaccine which only has temporary emergency authorization, which is created at warp speed, right. and having faith in that as a cure for our present situation is is not exactly based upon scientific evaluation. In other words, if we take it from the point of view of Ayurveda, Ayurveda says if you're cold, then you should add heat. And if you have too much heat, then you should add cold. There should be some kind of balance. Now, to jump to saying that whenever you're sick, you should take a vaccine, it's not exactly the same thing. First of all, in Ayurveda, everything is based upon digestion and assimilation. As I said, that if you can, that which you can digest is called food. That which you helps to digest is called medicine, and that which you can't digest is called poison. So that Krishna has set up what's called a systems of digestion, beginning with the tongue, for instance, on the gross level. The eyes we digest light. With the mouth we digest water and food and it goes through a system of digestion through the intestines so that it's assimilated into the body there's a transformation through the digestive system so the foreign substance becomes part of our body that which now is our brain was formerly maybe a carrot because it went through the process of becoming assimilated into the body right and that which is not digested properly is called am or toxins. And those toxins block the channels of the body, the respiratory channels, the digestive channels, the nervous system. All the, the body has many channels by which nutrients are brought to the cells and the waste products are brought out of the cells and eliminated principally through the stool, urine, and sweat. Now, when you inject something into the body, then which doesn't go through the digestive system, then it's automatically, we can understand it's going to be toxic to the body. So how you can get a cure, how you can get health by injecting toxins in the body, Ayurveda doesn't agree with. So, so what would you say then how to combat such a pandemic and a, and a dangerous situation for devotees? If, if if okay, you're saying that the vaccine is something that's would be considered toxic according to Ayurveda, but Ayurveda does does it does it really discuss how to um, deal with a situation like we have right now? Well, the question is, what is the situation? According to the statistics that I read, at least that ninety nine point nine percent of the people who have had SARS virus 2 survived, especially at a certain age group. Even in the older ages, you know, there's 99.4 or 5% survive when you get into the 70s and 80s and 90s, which is expected to leave their bodies anyhow at those ages. So the idea that, you know, everyone's dying, I mean, is a little bit exaggerated. The other thing is that as I gave in one class, that their very methodology of ascertaining that there was a so-called pandemic is rather dubious. 
the pandemic was declared when there was hardly anyone who so who had this virus. And when they diagnosed, when they ascertained if there was or how many people were sick with this virus, then what they did is they utilized a test called the PCR test, which was invented by a Nobel Prize winner. His name was Carrie Mollis. So as Carrie Mollis said in an interview with him, the PCR test was never meant to diagnose disease. It was a laboratory test to diagnose whether something was present or not, some molecule was present. So he said that uh, in an interview, that if you run this test, because it's run in what's called cycles, you take an element, say you have one molecule of gold, and you run the test, and it multiplies, and multiplies, and multiplies. So when you get up to a certain number of, of cycles that it's run, then you'll discover there was one molecule of gold in the substance. But in any substance, there's probably one molecule of everything in it. So if you're looking to find something, whatever it may be, the more cycles you run, more likely it is that you're going to find whatever you're looking for. Now, in terms of this virus, which has other problems of quote, which we won't, I won't go into called isolating the virus and actually finding out what the composition of the virus is. But anyhow, if you have some idea that there's something called a virus and it's called SARS virus, SARS virus 2, and you're looking for it. Uh, if you run the test more than 30 times, up to 35 times, then you may find something which is valid. But if you run a test more than 35 cycles, then whatever you're looking for will be there. Because there's something, there's one molecule of everything. It's, it's, whatever you're trying to measure. So who, the World Health Organization in December, had to change their guidelines because they were sued in, in Portugal because there were a number of scientists who were concerned that they were running the, the tests, they, the laboratories around the world were running the tests between 35 and 45 cycles and they were coming up with many many cases of, of COVID-19 positive and they were declaring that they had COVID-19 which is different from ascertaining that someone has SARS virus 2 as a positive PCR test but in other words SARS virus 2 virus positive test doesn't mean you have COVID-19 but should be also, you should have the symptoms. You should, whatever the symptoms, which are flu-like symptoms. To say that someone has the virus but has no symptoms, how can they say that they're diseased? Because if you look into the bloodstream of anyone, you'll find practically every, something of pneumonia, H, you know, many people have HIV who are not actually symptomatic. In any case, they were running it between 35 and 45 around the world cycles everyone was coming up positive but they were sued that this is as the dr fauci who's the head of the niah 
said anything above 35 cycles is meaningless. But that's what they were doing. They were running it at those cycles, and then it was called a pandemic because there were so many people were coming up positive. But it was discovered by further testing that 97% of those positives were actually false positives. So who had officially put on their website that you can't run this, these cycles so many times and that there should be some symptoms that go along with a positive PCR test in order to declare that they have COVID-19. Right. But although they put that on the website, they continue with the laboratories around the world running the test between 35 and 40 times, 45 times. When they want to declare a pandemic and they want, well, they want, they want to proclaim that their medicine or their injections, whatever they're doing, is helping, effect, uh, then they simply lower the number of cycles that they're running the test and suddenly the pandemic has disappeared. As there, do you understand what I'm talking about? In other words, if they run 35 to 40 cycles, everyone turns out to be positive. Right. And when they want everyone to become negative, they just run at 27 cycles and say, you're not, you don't have COVID-19. I see. So recently, the, the uh, CDC declared that there's two standards. If you didn't get the vaccine, we run it 35 to 40 cycles. And if you got the vaccine, we only run it 27 cycles. So those who got the vaccine, they're no longer COVID, they're no longer positive. And those who haven't been vaccinated, they suddenly become positive. When you, when you say you run it a certain amount of cycles, what does that mean exactly? Well, you put whatever you're trying to ascertain if something exists in it into, okay. the, into the mechanism. You run it one cycle, then it doubles. You run it two cycles, then it doubles that. You run it another cycle, it doubles that. So you run it enough cycles, then it's exponentially, you know, one molecule once in the substance will turn out to be positive. Right. So imagine if you're up to 30 cycles, and then you double it again. You're not only doubling it, but you're multiplying it by a great factor because it's one times two times four times eight times 16 times 32 times 64 times 128 and you keep on going on. So every cycle above 30, for instance, you're getting into the, you're multiplying it by tens and thousands, if not millions eventually. I see. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but there is still a threat in the sense of devotees have died and things like that. So how would you say, how would you say the recommendation, what would you say recommendation for devotees to say safe according to, uh, I guess, Ayurveda or, or alternative medicine? Well, I don't think Ayurveda is alternative. I think Ayurveda is the medicine. I think right. this concocted medicine is the alternative, med bad alternative medicine. Mm where the, their cure for disease is usually, if they haven't borrowed something, for instance, taking zinc or, or vitamin D or something from other modalities, because they generally don't deal with, with, with vitamins. And in, in, in school, in, in medical school, there is no study of, of diet. Maybe they study one day, they have a, you know, some classes on food. Right. Four years of medical school, they learned practically nothing about diet. 
But in diet, food is like medicine. Whatever we eat is going to have the most direct effect on our consciousness and our physical well-being. That's reality. It's also Ayurvedic science. If you eat too much or eat too little, you eat the wrong things, you don't eat at the right time. Eat ice cream in the dead of winter, and you you eat at the wrong time in the middle of the night, you should be <laughs> sleeping. And the next morning you wake up with, with mucus, and you blame it on the ice cream. Or you take an antibiotic to cure your mucus. But actually the problem was you took a food which was going to, which was hard to digest in the middle of night, which turned into mucus at a time of the year when you shouldn't be eating such food. And you were, you know, you did it the wrong, and then you get mucus. So the problem wasn't the ice cream. The problem was when you ate the ice cream, how you ate the ice cream, how much of the ice cream you ate. And then you cure it by suppressing the mucus, which is the body's attempt to get rid of the toxins, the, the, the indigested food, the indigested ice cream that you ate, which turned into mucus. The body's trying to get rid of it, and you're trying to suppress the natural elimination process, which would be by sneezing or coughing or vomiting or whatever. You suppress it. And what you're doing is you're just driving the, disease, the toxins deeper into your body, that's all. It's not a cure. It's actually a <clears throat> it's it's a uh, misapplication of of medicine. It's a misunderstanding of how the body works and its process of eliminating toxins and reversing it, suppressing it, and causing the body to build up more toxins, which would have been easily solved by just coughing or spitting or or sneezing or vomiting. Instead, you wind up by driving toxins, toxins deeper and deeper into the body where they find a place where they disturb the body even more and eventually manifest itself in more chronic diseases. And eventually the chronic diseases turn into autoimmune diseases. And then you blame it all and then you take more and more suppressants Mm -hmm. When that doesn't work, then you cut out the offending organ or burn it out or radiate it out or chemicalize it out. Because you never really wanted to control your eating, control your, the, the mind, control our activities. We want to live as if there are no laws of nature and we can do whatever we want. And if something goes wrong, we destroy it. And that will solve the problem. Right, right. I think a lot think of devotees would have, have a little a bit little of an bit. issue with what you're saying because it's not so black and white. Like what you're saying is a very, it's a very black and white. The way you're say, expressing is very black and white. Okay, we, you have to deal with certain medical issues. You have to see what the what the root of it is. It, it's, it's in your uncontrolled mind and uncontrolled eating and habits and things like that. But it, it's not that black and white, though, is it? Well, can you give me an example? I'm not saying, in other words, living in the material world, especially in Kali Yuga, is a time when we have to make compromises. But we shouldn't compromise ourselves to the extent that we actually believe that th there are no laws of material nature. 
maybe when you're younger, you can believe that you can eat as much as you want and get away with it. Right. But when you get older and when you get the effect, the reaction for eating too much because the power of digestion has gone down and there becomes more evident that there are laws of nature and we can, simple laws of nature don't eat more than you can digest. Now, Prabhupada said that, or is it China Kapanda says that one should not eat more than one can digest, except if it's winter. Or in other words, he said, if you don't know whether to eat or not to eat, better not to eat, unless it's winter when your digestive power is greater. If you don't know to go somewhere or not to go somewhere, then don't go somewhere. But if we believe that we can live a life without any conscious understanding of how the material nature works, even in a simple way like that, and that somehow or another will be saved by some modality of medicine, whether it be allopathic or Ayurveda or chiropractic or naturopathy, they can't make up for our disobeying the laws of material nature so easily. Mm. It will be some reaction. They could try to modify it or mitigate it. But we have a responsibility too to understand how the body works, how our body works particularly, and try to live in harmony with it. Try to understand, you know, what the effects of a controlled mind will be and what the effects of anxiety will be. How that will cloud our consciousness and ultimately cloud our, our, our activities. I mean, some people, they eat too much, not because they're too hungry, but because it solves their emotional issues. Right. Because food has different tastes, like sweet, sour, salty, pungent, astringent, and bitter. So if one is very depressed, one will favor the sweet taste because it makes one feel better. But too much sweet will turn into diabetes. Similarly, if one is very ambitious when they favor the pungent taste but pungent taste may turn into you know affecting the heart anger similarly favoring the salty taste will, will make one more and more desirous because salt increases one's desire to enjoy so food will actually have an effect upon our consciousness first of all and if we live according to, to satisfy our consciousness, uh, eating too much of the wrong foods, of the food that will aggravate certain condition that we might have a propensity for, will result in a disease. To, to give an example, I'm say, I would say like, okay, those who have been affected by COVID-19 and who have uh, taken the vaccine and and benefit from it that's it's not that's the gray area that i'm kind of discussing here that well i just wonder in the trials that moderna pfizer astrogenica johnson johnson did they didn't really examine whether it actually you know what the benefit was the benefit was that out of the thirty thousand participants including the control groups control group then all they were measuring is, for instance, uh, 150, when 150 of those participants had one or more side effects, 
one side, I'm sorry, one side effect. Then when they got up to 150 side effects, they stopped the trial. So all they showed is statistically insignificant in reality, uh, advantage of taking the vaccine as opposed to not taking the vaccine in terms of getting one less side effect from COVID-19. Which means out of 30,000, and, and they were saying it was, for instance, 95, 97% effective, but that was a t statistically, it was a uh, mis, oh, we could say miscommunication or a, being a little devious with the statistics. Because with, if 150 people had side effects, one less side effect, and I'd say out of that group, 70, uh, 50 of them were in the control group or had taken the vaccine, and 100 of them were, let's say, 100 of them took the vaccine and 50 of them, or 100 people who got the side effect were in the control group, and 50 of those were in the, those who took the vaccine out of 30,000. Then they declared that the, the vaccine would be 100% effective because 100% more people in the control group got a, one side effect as compared to 50 people in the in the those who took the vaccine. So they declared it was 100% effective, but that's relative effectiveness because compared to 30,000, you know, if you divide 30,000 into 100, you get you know, 0 0.003. And if you divide 30,000 into, into 50, you get maybe 0 0.15. So then the actual effectiveness is insignificant compared to the, when you compare it to 30,000. Is that clear? Yeah. No, that, that's the absolute effectiveness compared to the relative effectiveness. So you, Declaring that it was it was ninety five percent effective is misleading. It was actually statistically it was insignificantly effective in reducing one symptom alone. So these are not actually vaccines because a vaccine, at least legally in some states in America, were supposed to stop are supposed to stop transmission of the disease and supposed to stop acquiring the disease. Now, these were never tested in the trials. All that was tested is developing one symptom, that's all. Right. And the trials were only done for, sometimes they were approved in emergency basis in four months. But an actual vaccine to get an approval usually took between seven to 15 years to 20 years for approval. So these are called warp speed. Approved. They're not approved. They're just approved on an emergency basis. They haven't gone through the animal trials. As a matter of fact, all the animal trials wound up with the animal that they did, whether it be on monkeys or on rodents, other kind of hamsters and rabbits, they all got seriously ill or died during the trials. So there was no successful animal trial. So as I said, one mouse is asking another mouse, uh, are you going to take the vaccine? And the mouse says, not until it goes through the human trial. 
<laughs> Krishna. So now we have a big trial. The trial is those who are taking the vaccines. They're the, they're, they are the trial. And the trial, at least the, the other trial that they're doing, won't end until 2023 for Moderna, Pfizer, etc. So there, we're in the middle of those who are taking the vaccine, this approved emergency. They are the trial. They're the, they're the guinea pigs. What do you think the role of ISKCON or the Krishna Conscious Movement is when it comes to making recommendations one way or another for for vac- vaccinations? Do you think it's appropriate that the leaders weigh in on the on the whole thing? Because there has been weighing in on on it, but it's been well. I think you know what we're talking about. In other words, for someone to just say that blindly accept, I think as Sita Padibhu said, there is we have shabda, which is our Vedas, and part of the Vedas is Ayurveda. But we have Shabda, which we accept as we hear, for instance, Prabhupada gave the example that the bones of an animal are contaminating. But the bone of, in the Veda, it says the bone of a conch shell is purifying, or the stool of an animal is contaminating, but the stool of a cow is, is purifying. So we accept it because the Vedas say it. So that's called Shabda. Now in science, they have a scientific method. Now, the scientific method based upon Pratyaksha and Anuman, they have four defects inherent within them. Yeah. Imperfect senses, tendency to cheat, committing mistakes, and being an illusion. So, at best, we can say by the experimental process, we have a theory, we have an experiment, we have an observation, and we have a conclusion. So, unless we can put forward our theory, as well as the experiment, along with the observations, then we can talk about the conclusion. But when you're talking about an experimental vaccine that hasn't gone through the normal experiment and and observation, and we already have the conclusion that they're safe and effective, then I I think we're misusing the scientific method, which is imperfect anyhow. But then we, we fall into the position of cheating declaring something safe and effective when we have no idea if it's safe and effective. We're just repeating like a parrot what the pharmaceutical companies are declaring. And because of one reason or another, those who are supposed to guard us from such statements seem to be complicit in such statements. So that's, that's if we want to deal with science, then we should deal with the scientific method, which is imperfect in itself and ever-changing. But at least we should stick to that method if we want to be honest. And if not, that not only we're we're subjecting ourselves to our imperfect senses and are committing mistakes and being an illusion, but the worst thing is we're cheating others. So you think that nothing should have been said or it should have been said that don't take the vaccine? Well, that depends upon some actual real investigation. In other words, why would you ask someone why would you ask someone for some disease which is causing practically no deaths amongst a certain population? Why would you ask and then if you look at the possibility that they did on the on the animal studies that so many animals got seriously ill or died 
Why would you take such a risk? Why would you, first of all, why would you advise anyone to take such a risk unnecessarily? And the second is that if you see such a risk, why not inform the devotees that there's a risk like that? That so hardly anyone from a certain age group has died from this COVID-19, no more than the seasonal flu or even less. And at the same time, the animal study showed us that they're very dangerous. So that would be a normal way of approaching it. So the question is, why aren't we dealing with the normal way? Why is our leadership not concerned with what we, what we consider at least an honest investigation of what the PCR tests, how they are being misinterpreted or mis misused? Why, you know, we're uh, encouraging something which is dangerous? I was talking to one devotee today and he was telling me that after the mass, mass, mass vaccination in Govardhan in India, that within a couple of days, two people died. Why take such a risk for what's the benefit? Reducing one symptom? You know, that's all they've shown. But for instance, now they have VARS. VARS is the... Uh, that it's the reporting system in America right. where they passively, they invite people, doctors, to report side effects, including death from the vaccinations. Now, it's a passive. So the medical, one medical school did an investigation and discovered that only 1% of the people who actually have the side effects from the vaccinations actually report to VARS. So whatever statistics are there are only perhaps a fraction of the actual statistics. And presently, over 5,000 people who have taken the vaccines have reported to, to VARS. I mean, the doctors or some reported that they died from the vaccine. And 150,000 reported serious side effects or side effects. Now, that's more than all the other vaccines or vaccinations for the last 15 years put together. Right, I heard that, yeah. So how can anyone seriously repeat that these vaccines are safe and effective? In Europe, where the reporting system is slightly better, 12,000 people have reported death, dead from the vaccinations. And many more hundreds and thousands of people have reported to have serious side effects. But I know that that's only a fraction because devotees, for instance, in the manner reported that they were encouraged to take, in the Bhattavedanta manner, they were encouraged to take the vaccinations. Right. And the result is that they were seriously sick. They were very sick for days, and some of them couldn't do their service. And one devotee who's a medical worker reported that he almost died from the vaccination. And uh, only by the, the grace of his wife, he recovered by herbal treatment. And then he was forced to take it again, another the second vaccine, and he got even more sick from it, seriously ill. Hmm. So I know devotees have died and have gotten seriously sick, and to keep on pushing this idea that they're safe and effective is rather misrepresenting it. Misrepresenting. It seems that to make ISKCON uh, not stand out in our 
in a, in the world as being like a so-called maybe conspiracy theorist uh, we're supporting conspiracy theories and and things to to continue the mainstream narrative would be in uh would be a way to make make Hare Krishna the Hare Krishna movement look relevant to the world and 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 that we're you know following what everyone else is saying because that's what that's how people can become not you know have mistrust towards uh, the movement but if you if we speak in a way that's completely going in the opposite direction of the world then that could be a reason why people might say we'll just write off these people as being crazy yeah Robert wrote a little pamphlet I think in 1970. <laughs> it was crazy. Like crazy, right? So if you want to follow the, you know, pros that if you stand on your hands and clap them, then everyone will, will think that you're relevant. But if you, <laughs> the question is who we're trying to please. Are we trying to please the mass of ignorant people? We're trying to please our acharyas. We're convinced mm -hmm. that Krishna is God. We're convinced that what he says in his incarnations, such as Danvantari, who put forward Ayurveda. I'm not saying that allopathic medicine or other medicines don't have their place. Sure. Take them as, as Shabda, as the absolute truth, and follow them blindly is, is actually uh, a misuse of intelligence. So, yeah, we should try to be cautious in the sense that we don't want to uh, go against the laws of the land because we're very small and very we don't have very much influence and power. On the other hand, to become subservient in our philosophy, in our activities, to those who are actually against Krishna and against Krishna's philosophy puts us in the wrong side of, of the, you know, what Krishna says there are two classes of people. Yeah. So it puts us on the wrong side. If we're, and also, just like for instance, we have in our Krishna book, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, we have Kangsa. He was on the wrong side. He was a good administrator. He was probably popular in Mathura to some degree. But his association was not very good. And when, when uh, there was a Shaimantaka jewel, Satrajit had the Shaimantaka jewel. I, then what happened is that Krishna wanted the Simon Takajul, when Chaturjit visited Dwarka, to be given to King Ugrasena, but Satrajit refused. So there was a conspiracy by Satrajit. Right. Vedana and by Akura, no less, and others, to get the Simon Takajul away from Satrajit. In any case, Krittavarma was also engaged in that conspiracy. And as we know, the Samachaka jewel was stolen by Satvadanva, and he he was ultimately killed, and the Samachaka jewel recovered by Krishna, given to Balaram, who gave it to, to Madhu Mangal, who gave it to Shimati Rarani. But the question was raised by our acharyas, how is it that Akrara who was a great devotee of Krishna, and how is it that Kritavarma, who was also a great devotee of Krishna, be, became involved in a conspiracy like that? So Acharya's answer that because Kritavarma was associating with 
Kangsa, who is the demon, he became affected by it. Mm. And therefore he got involved in that conspiracy. Because Akura, because he was he had still he had taken Krishna from Vrindavan, therefore the gopis cursed him. And therefore he got involved in the conspiracy. Right. But if we associate too much rather than give our association, then we sometimes get affected by our the contributions, whether it be the prestige that we're given by by prominent people in society or by even by governments and by the money that we take from them. If we compromise our principles and we we lose faith in the teachings of our acharyas and in the Vedas, we lose faith in the Vedas and compromise it too much, then we'll wind up like that proverbial person who is hungry, couldn't find any place to eat, so he went to a Mohammedan's house and he ate whatever little food the Mohammedan gave him a very small amount of food. So he left the house and said, I've lost my cast and I'm still hungry. <laughs> so we may imagine, I mean, it's good that we get favorable, uh, a favorable image in society. Yeah, but it shouldn't be at the cost of our philosophy and our our, our teachings and the, the very well-being of our members of the, of our movement. We have to have a little bit more deeper look into what we're what we're encouraging devotees to do, and it shouldn't be just to keep our prestige and the money flowing into our into our treasury. It seems like you, like the devotees who are speaking, like you are, in the sense of that. Okay, we need to. This needs to be researched more. This needs to be. We need to do. We need to work according to shastra, and not according to just listening to what mainstream people are saying. It seems like this is a real minority viewpoint. Yeah, anyhow, we learn. There's three ways of learning. One way is learning from hearing, the other way is learning from experience, and the other one is you don't learn. So at least we should be in the second. I mean, our society has blindly followed our leaders, whether after Prabhupada left, then we had the Zonacharya system. Right. That suddenly that 11 of our members who before were ordinary devotees in the eyes of most of the devotees, suddenly became Mahabhagavats just by being appointed to become initiate. Right. And then they, they divided up the world into different kingdoms of Zonacharyas. And if you didn't agree with that, then you were ostracized from the society. And you were belittled and berated, chastised, threatened, but that didn't make it right. Yeah. Just because I declare myself to be pal, uh, just because I have a position, it doesn't mean that whatever I do is right. But because what I do is right, therefore my position becomes meaningful, can be utilized properly. Or it's probably right, it's blind following and absurd inquiries are condemned. That one should hear not only submissively, but one should get a clear understanding through submission, service, and inquiry. So we take out the inquiry and the actual practical application and see what the results are. We only blindly follow 
they were in the category of being foolish. Mm. Now, I know there's a story that's going around where Prabhupada, they, they say that Prabhupada actually took a vaccine. What's your viewpoint on that? I mean, do you, do you, have you heard that story or do you know something else about what he might have said regarding vaccines? Well, I have a little excerpt from Hari Keshpur, who was personally there with Shil Prabhupada, for instance, when he was, Prabhupada was going to South Africa. Would you like to hear it? Please. So this is from Hari Keshpur. We were going from Mauritius to South Africa, so we needed to have yellow fever shots. And Prabhupada had never had one in his whole life because he would never take any shots. But you cannot go to a doctor and just have him stamp the card. You actually had to get the shot and actually have them sign that you got the shot. So Shri Prabhupada refused to get the shot and he said, somehow or another, get me that card. And then he had this little smile on his face. So then I said to Pushta Krishna, okay, let's go. Then he said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to get the shots ourselves and do something. He said, ah. So we went downtown and Pusta Krishna takes Prabhupada's card for shots and he gets the shot. And when the man asks him for his name, he says, Bhaktivedanta Swami. And then he asks him for a date of birth. So then Pushta Krishna says, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and the man said, you forgot? Then at that time, I'm sitting just two rows up and rose up and saying, oh, God, we're in trouble now. So all of a sudden, I start chanting, Hare Krishna. I'm chanting. I'm doing this ecstasy thing. And this guy is looking around. He said, what's going on? He says, you don't remember? And Pushta Krishna says, I can't remember anything anymore. It's so confusing, all this chanting. I don't remember anything anymore. <laughs> And I'm just going on and on and making a whole scene. Finally, the guy, said, the guy says, well, when you remember, write it on the card. He said, yeah, I sure will. Then he went back and wrote in, 19, wrote in 1896. <laughs> we told Prabhupada what we did, and he was laughing and laughing. Yeah. I mean, Prabhupada, if you read, if you just go in the database, you type in injection, what to speak of vaccine, you'll see what Prabhupada actually said about vaccines and injections. Someone could say, okay, we don't, we don't rely on the Acharya to tell us something that has to do with our physical situation like we don't we we've never gone to Prabhupada to ask us what we should do about something else that was that was just like a physical thing like for example i don't know some other kind of disease like we never wait Prabhupada never waiting on other things so why now well the Prabhupada did weigh in on other things if you look at the this book i have please show us yes which has Prabhupada's letters you don't even need this book. You can just go in Prabhupada's letters and you can see 
that probably dealt very a lot with jo Mother Jadarani, with uh, all the different devotees, whatever medical concerns they had, probably gave them medicines, they gave them advice from the Ayurveda. In other words, we do have a Shabda called Ayurveda yeah. that works. Now you have to be somewhat expert to utilize it. It's not that anyone could just blindly follow. It requires expertise. In Ayurveda, there are four pillars of cure. One of them is the doctor. The other one is the nurse. The other one is the patient. And the fourth one is the medicine. Now, these are, these are all vital for the proper treatment of disease. But out of the four, the doctor is the most essential. Because even if there's a lack in expertise on the nurse's side or the medicine side, making the medicine, or in the patient's ability, willingness to follow the prescription, if the doctor is expert enough, he can somewhat make up for it, if not completely. So Prabhupada knew the science of Ayurveda, and he could give advice. Now, as we have basically very simple principles of reality, that there's a soul, as Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, that the body's changing, but the, the soul ourselves were not changing. So we have, <clears throat> we have direct experience of that. It's science. When Prabhupada was giving a lecture in a conference, he was at a conference in the University of Durban in South Africa. Then one other Indian gentleman objected when Prabhupada talked about the science of transmigration of the self. So Prabhupada said, this is actually a science. It's not a Hindu philosophy, as the man was, was more or less uh, indicating that Swamiji, you're talking about a Hindu dogma. So Prabhupada said, it's not a dogma, it's a science. That Krishna, when he spoke to Arjuna on the battlefield, he didn't say, my dear Arjuna, I'm a Hindu god, and you're a Hindu, so I'm going to talk to you Hindu philosophy. Right. But according to Hindu philosophy, all Hindus have bodies that change. And, but luckily, Hindus have souls. So at the time of the death, the Hindus take another body. Unfortunately, the, the Christians and others, the Mohammedans, they, they're, they're, they don't have a soul, nor does their body change. So if they do die, they, they don't get another, whatever. No, it's not a Hindu philosophy. Every living entity has a body that's changing, and every living entity has a soul that doesn't change. So when we leave the body, the soul gets another body. That's science that everyone can observe. Similarly, the fact that the planets are moving their orbits and that we're eating food and it's being digested, assimilated, and the unnecessary parts are being eliminated indicates supreme intelligence in the universe, but it indicates a supreme intelligent person. So this is science. It's not a dogma. Similarly, when Krishna says there are five elements, earth, water, fire, air, and ether, mind, intelligence, and false ego, it's not a relative conception, it's reality. There is solid matter, which is earth. There is energy that keeps things together in the form of water. Like when you add water to, to flour, it turns into dough. There's energy that transforms one substance to another called fire. If you throw a paper into a fire, it gets transformed into ashes. 
there's an energy that moves things in the universe called air in a generalized term. And it moves, for instance, when we eat something, it moves things from one part of our body to the next, moves the planets in their orbits. And there's something called ether, which is holding everything in its place. And then, of course, we have our mind, our emotions, our perspective on life, and our identification, called the false ego, with either ourselves as spiritual beings or ourselves as products of the material energy. So this is science. Now, how these energies interact, depending on how expert we are, how expertly we know the science, we can predict what the results may be. If you're cold, to the balance, you add heat. For instance, if you take too if you're taking too much sweet, you might want to counteract it with some ginger, because ginger will give you some fire in the digestive system to digest the sweet, which is heavy. So it's not just a speculation, it's a science. Otherwise, how do we understand that in the battlefield Kurukshetra, that when the soldiers are fighting, they were full of arrows during the day, and at night they'd come back and they'd apply some herbs to the, the wounds and they cure so they can go back and fight the next day. How do we understand that when Indra, when uh, Vitrasura threw his club at Indra, of course Indra threw his club, Vitrasura caught it and then threw it back at Indra and it hit his elephant, Airavata. Elephant, the elephant was thrown back many hundreds of yards. And Indra took his hand of nectar and put it over the elephant and cured him immediately. So either we accept this as mythology or we accept it as a higher authority as science. The Dichi's bones were turned into the thunderbolt. You know, we have so many examples of, of great devotees like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu embracing the leper Vasudev and his body being transformed into a beautiful body and his cure of leprosy was is there. Either we accept this as mythology or we accept that there's higher, higher energies beyond what the present modern science knows of that work when they're properly employed, when they can be employed by the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu or Indra or by the Ayurvedic doctors in ancient times or by whatever competency a, a present doctor may have, whether it be Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or whatever, or even allopathic, whatever competency they actually have in order to effect cure. But when we're trying to effect cure by covering over symptoms and saying that's a cure rather than actually curing the disease, and if we're, when we're covering over the symptoms, we actually make the, the progression of disease even stronger then we're being dishonest by saying we're actually dealing with, with medicine. We're dealing with a cover-up over the symptoms of the disease. So if we want to cover up if that we don't have time to get serious and try to solve our material problem, our medical problems, and we want a quick fix that will cover things over, that's also, Krishna is giving that to us. And if we want to become a little bit more serious about our health, we might take a different approach, that's all. In Ayurveda, it says there are different groups of people who never are cured. Even when they take a cure, they're still not cured because they don't change their lifestyle. One of them is the prostitute because their business is such that they won't get cured because their business itself is not healthy. 
Another category is the traveling preacher. Because of the very lifestyle that he has, it's very difficult to actually effect a cure because they don't change, they, it's very hard for them to change their lifestyle. So it's not that every type, modality of medicine is suitable for everyone. For instance, in Ayurveda, it says there are three classes of medicine according to the modes of nature. By chanting of mantras and by other means, that's in the mode of goodness. By taking herbs and different, uh, treat, uh, different physical treatments, then that's in the mode of passion. And by taking chemicals and surgery and things like that, that's in the mode of ignorance. So not everyone is in, equally in the in the, the modes of nature, nor is one, everyone equally, some people are attracted by a certain modality when they're dealing with medicine, like everything else. So in Charak Samhita, they deal with more or less, mostly with goodness and, and passion. And in Shushusatihita, Shushuta dealt with mostly with, with surgery, but that's not available right now in most places. There's some Surgery in Ayurveda still, but it's not very well developed. That's developed in, in allopathy to a great degree. So for those who are, see that as their modality of medicine, that's what's being offered. But then you also have to get the, the problems that come along with it. And the potential for maybe helping and also the potential for harm. What do you think... Shri Prabhupada's viewpoint would be in responding to the pandemic. Well, maybe I can read something that Prabhupada said about. Well, first of all, I think Prabhupada was a little discriminating. He didn't accept whatever the mass media is saying. He didn't accept that we went that these people who allegedly went to the moon went there. He didn't accept that the the, the doctors were actually knowledgeable in the science of medicine. He didn't accept many things that were current. For his preaching, he didn't always emphasize it. In private conversations, he generally he emphasized these things more, but not in general preaching. But when it came to speaking reality, you know, I was with Prabhupada when he came to Dallas, when he came to Chicago, and there were, the big controversy was over women's liberation. So Prabhupada didn't, he was very straightforward and direct that women's role is not to take the role of a man. That they're, they have a different body and that they, they have a different dharma to take care of children, for instance. A man can't have children, but women can. Therefore, she should take care of them and the man should be responsible to take care of the child and the, and the woman also. Right. So Prabhupada didn't mind talking things that were, at that time, were quite controversial and were probably even more controversial now. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't, he, he, he told the truth. I mean, when Prabhupada in the interview in 1968, they asked him, Swamiji, I think it was 68 or 67, you know, about their going to the moon. And probably said, well, if they have the proper spacesuit, then they can go. But I don't think they have the proper spacesuit. So, in other words, probably did just give it into Vox Populi right. and just go along with it. He wasn't trying to become popular, he was trying to become effective.
what he was trying to do. Hmm. What was that thing you were going to read? Oh, I just give one one of the little quotes from Prabhupada about vaccinations. So Brahmananda, as a result of the vaccine, they cre- this is a very long conversation. This is just a fraction of it. Okay. As a result of the vaccine, they create a worse top- type of influenza. They have nothing to counteract that worse type. So now they have to invent another type, Prabhupada. These rascals give trouble to the people, especially in India. They're not after the vaccine. They will catch people and force them. Just see, this is going on. Boys and others are avoiding. They are going, going this way, that way. Sometimes they fall. They do not know and capture and force. These rascals are creating havoc, only to kick them on their face with shoes. That's all. The so-called scientists, and biologists, they do not know anything. Prabhupada. Anyhow, this is just a little fraction of what Prabhupada said. Right. And it's, this is my, I mean, some, someone may object that why, you know, Prabhupada's talking according to time, place, and circumstance. But Prabhupada was consistently talking about what he felt about the material scientists, what he felt about the material medical scientists, but he talked about things like injections or vaccines. He was consistent in it. He may have utilized them for analogies, the idea of vaccination. Right. But in terms of actually what he felt was the value of it, he was quite vocal about it. And so since some of our leaders have come out and supported the idea that Prabhupada was in favor of vaccinations, it would be worthy for the devotees to actually investigate what Prabhupada actually said about injections and vaccinations, rather than just blindly follow. Hmm. Now, as this is this is my personal view. This is not the view of the whole GBC body, but the GBC body right now doesn't have any view. So, if the devotees want to find out, they should investigate for themselves. You don't have to take my word for it. As a matter of fact, I don't think you should take my word for it. But you can see if I'm making this up, but just by going to the Veda base and looking through Prabhupada's instructions. Go through Srimad Bhagavatam. Right. See what medicine is being described. Whether Danvantari is taking the Danvantari, the father of Ayurveda, is taken as an incarnation, whether he was mythology, whether the Ashwini Kumaras are just a figment of some Yasudev's imagination. The science of medicine that they were teaching is just some kind of ancient science that doesn't really pertain to the laws of nature, is not applicable to the modern society. You said you said earlier about how okay, allopathic medicine and modern medicine does have its place in in the sense that if okay, if we get hit by a car or run over by a car or something, you go to the emergency room. So the same thing can be said about this, about COVID that this is a very dangerous disease and this is an emergency situation. Okay, so what led you to the conclusion that it's a dangerous disease? <laughs> people, many people are, people, devotees have died from it. We, and, and. Uh, How do we know they died from it? What's that? How do we know they died from COVID-19? Or SARS virus too? How do we know that's the cause? 
In America, for instance, they changed the death certificates at the beginning of 2020. Usually there was a primary reason of death that the, the doctor would write on it. The, and, and then they changed it. They put uh, the primary reason of death, whether it be a heart attack or a stroke, whatever. And they, they put alongside of it COVID-19. So if someone tested, when someone had a heart attack and they were tested positive for COVID-19, whether they died of COVID-19 or not, that would be put on the, in the checkbox right next right. to the, the primary. And he would be counted as a death from COVID-19. As a matter of fact, one, there are many instances of persons dying from other causes. And, you know, for instance, one person died in a motorcycle accident. And after the motorcycle accident, they te he tested positive for COVID-19, running it, Krishna knows how many cycles, where everyone gets tested as COVID positive. And the cause of death was declared to be COVID-19. It was counted in the statistics for COVID-19. Now, especially when there's incentive that hospitals were getting up $16,000 in some states for positive COVID-19 patients and $34,000 putting them on a respirator. Obviously, there was a great incentive to fill out the form and check COVID-19 positive. So whether or not who died from what, yes, it's possible that people have died from different causes, but because of the misapplication of this PCR test and the, the the changing of the cause of death on the death certificates in many states in America, the statistics are rather ambiguous to declare that it was a dangerous. I understand that about the statistics, but the disease has claimed lives is what I'm saying. And it's emergency situation. Well, good. Okay. So we should take emergency measures. Right. But whether, but whether the vaccine is actually that emergency measure, then it should actually stop transmission and should stop the people from getting it. But now we have people who have taken two vaccines and they're getting sick. Right. And dying from, dying from what they, you know, from the disease. So it's not really a vaccine then? No, it's not a vaccine. And, and therefore we should take emergency care. We should give people fresh air. They should change their diet. They should stop being obese so they don't get heart attacks. Right. They, should, they should start start becoming vegetarians. They should chew their food. They should do some exercise. Now, statistically, if 99.9% .9 of people below 70 years old haven't died from the disease, in what way can we declare that it's such a dangerous disease? It's, no more, it's a lot less dangerous. I think 10 million people die from tuberculosis every year. I don't know how many people die from unclean water in India. So why don't we attack that problem? Right. Why don't we clean the water up in India or all around the world? Why don't we stop people outlaw smoking? Why don't we outlaw opium drugs, which is a big killer? Alcohol. Alcohol. Why don't we do those things? Why, why are we picking on this and vaccinating billions of people with, some, with something that's giving side effects that are killing tens and thousands of people. That's a really good point.
That's a really, really good point. Yeah. So what's the answer then? Why, 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 is, why is everyone focused on this? Bad karma. People have been killing children. They've been killing animals for decades, for hundreds of years now. But there's never been a time in history where people killed more animals, killed more children in the womb, who have taken more, taken more intoxication, who are engaged in more illicit sex, pornography, and other kinds of illicit sex, and who are gambling and speculating. And so people are more sinful than ever in history, and therefore we can expect they have to get sinful reactions. So you're saying that this kind of pestilence and other natural disasters and things are a reaction to uh, sinful activities of the world. Yeah. It says in the Ayurveda that in the Charak Samhita, I believe it's the Charak Samhita, that when, when the leaders of society become corrupt, then the air and the water and the food, everything becomes polluted. And therefore, there's pestilence in the world. So because we have sinful people, however innocent they may be, but they're engaged in sinful activities. Right. Therefore, they put up, they, by their karma, they've uh, put sinful people as their leaders who are creating all kinds of pollution in the air, in the water, in people's minds, in the food. And therefore, there's pestilence. There's disease all around the world. It's not that before COVID-19 came along, there was no problems going on. There were so many people who were dying. Yeah. Diseases, cancer, heart disease, overdose and opiates, you know, all kinds of things caused by obesity. So autoimmune diseases, thyroid problems. So this is due to sinful reactions for our sinful activities. Usually there, people get killed in big wars, which may come anyhow. Millions mm. of people get killed in wars, but could we imagine when people are even more sinful now, how many more you know, reactions we're gonna get? It's not by protesting or by passing laws or by making statements that these sinful reactions will go away. They're part of the material nature, how it works. To, to, to bring it back home, it's, I would say that our society has been so divided on this issue of listening to the mainstream narrative or listening to the alternative, what we can call the alternative narrative. Now, what, did your, what is your outlook on that? that uh, the way I look at it is that the div divide and conquer Maya and material energy divides us. And that's how they're, we're con how that's how you conquer someone is when you divide people. What is your outlook on, on our society of ISKCON being so divided on this issue? Well, the only thing we can unite on is probably instructions, the instructions coming from the Vedic literature, especially Bhagavad Gita, Shrimad Bhagavatam, Titanya Charitamrita and try to distribute that to others. In other words, 
whether the vaccine is going to kill everyone or whether it won't kill everyone, it's going to be safe and effective, whatever it is. That's not the point. The point is we have to organize our society in such ways that we're safe and effective in spreading Christian consciousness. Mm. So whether, you know, those who accept our main mission and efficiently and effectively propagate it and concentrate on it, then they'll be fulfilling Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission. And those who want to become deviated and focus on something else, and how much it may seem relevant at this time, and neglect the most important aspect of our society, spreading Krishna consciousness, then we'll be, to some extent, wasting our time. I mean, the fact is that even if we take the vaccine and, and it's very detrimental to our health, or if we don't take it, and we will, will, will live healthily, none of us have that long to live in these bodies. And therefore, whatever time we have, rather than arguing over whether it's safe and effective or not, we should spend the time trying to preach. And for those who have intelligence and interest in the subject, they should carefully examine it in an unbiased way and yeah. factor in all the different elements, such as our image, legalities, the health of the devotees, and weigh, you know, give some real direction, some real, because the leader is supposed to have vision, so that these things can be properly balanced and that at least we can have as much as possible unified movement in preaching, which is our real most important part of our society. That's our mission. But on the other hand, if we cast doubt on Prabhupada, if we cast doubt on the Vedic knowledge, we cast doubt that, you know, this. This is only from some ancient age, and it doesn't really, yeah. it's not really relevant now. Or the Prabhupada didn't know what he was talking about because an old man from India. We destroyed people's faith in our acharyas and in the Vedic literature. Then we'll become a sara, and therefore whatever we're doing will not be effective. So we should try to focus in our mission and have faith in what Prabhupada said. At the same time, we do want to have a proper image. We don't want to be seen as fanatical or crazy as much as possible. But we don't want to be seen as simply blind followers either. That's a great point. There's that balance that needs to be had, I believe. But but not in a way that, uh, you know, compromises our principles, our, like you said, doubting of our, of our Shastra, doubting of our Acharyas. That's really important. We're not in a position. We don't. We're not the super soul. We don't know the past, present, future. We don't know the. We're not necessarily a hundred percent clear on, on any medical science. Ayurveda is said to be only one tenth of the available literature in Kali Yuga, what actually was existing before. So, what to speak of a new science called allopathy or whatever you know, all the other modalities. Uh, as Prabhupada said, they're experiments. Now, there are many sincere doctors and, you know, on, on all these modalities. Even in Ayurveda, when Prabhupada was sick and he went back to India, he wrote to his friend and he asked him, please find me a good Ayurvedic doctor in India, in Vrindavan. He said there are many quacks there and, many, and there are some bona fide ones, so please find me a bona fide one. So it's not that even a divine science, necessarily everyone who, who learns the science to some degree is divine. 
although I've met some who are quite expert, and I've met some who are really expert at the science, but they had material motivations for doing it, and therefore they were not so effective because they didn't really want to help people as much as get money from people or prestige from them. And I know many allopathic doctors are very sincere, and they, they have some knowledge of their, their expert in their, their particular field, and they can help the devotees in different ways. I've taken help from many expert devotee doctors. But when they talk about something that they know, know not very little about, and they haven't really investigated very deeply themselves, as if they're experts, then I don't accept them as my authority in that particular aspect. Right. Yeah, that's an important point. What would you say to someone who said, okay, I mean, you made the point, what we can unite on is uh, preaching Krishna consciousness and pushing the movement forward and, 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 you know, the philosophy of Krishna consciousness. What would you say to someone who says you're spiritually bypassing? You're basically sidestepping this really uh, serious situation that we have by saying, okay, we need to develop our spiritual life. That's spiritual bypassing, what what they say is spiritual. No, I, I, I follow a diet. <laughs> I personally follow a diet. I do exercise every day. I breathe fresh air. I drink good water. I try to have nice relationships with other living entities. <laughs> right. So, and I try to read Prabhupada's books so that my mind is full as much as possible in Krishna consciousness. Right. And I try to push on, I try to serve Srila Prabhupada in his mission. So that I have some purpose in life. I assume you don't overly watch the news. I only watched, I was watching the news very selectively. Right. For some time I was watching zero news. But then when yeah. this came along and had, you know, I had to find out what was going on. I got to the point where I got sufficiently, I got an understanding of what was going on. And that was enough. I didn't have to really get into all the more details and more details. Because it was clear, you know, where, where it came from, where it's going, to me at least. And therefore, I, I wasn't I'm not as concerned as I was before. If I were you, I would feel a little bit hurt or, yeah, maybe hurt after being the health minister for, for a number of year, 25 years or so. Now that thing is all dissolved and the fact that you have an opposing view on what everyone else thinks could be a well, factor on that. Opposing, I think it would have been good if there was actually some sincere discussion. Right. It wasn't discussed with you at all? Well, any attempt I had for discussion was cut off. So, and it was sidestepped with what I consider to be illogic. illogic putting in what's called ad hominems, attacking the person who's making the, the investigation right. or the statement, rather than actually dealing with, with the actual knowledge of facts. Right. For instance, even when I quoted from their authorities, I mean allopathic authorities, from the World Health Organization, from the C Center for Disease Control, from Dr. Anthony Fauci, from the Time Magazine, Still, because it ran contrary to the, their conception, therefore they rejected it. They didn't want to deal with it. Mm. So much fixed in their conception that anything outside of their conception is taken as a threat. So dealing with such a situation, there's no dialogue. 
there's no reasoning, there's no investigation, there's what times there's a demand for blind following. Yeah. And the person group that we want to follow are, you know, not devotees. They don't believe in the soul. They don't believe in the super soul. They're not even following the, the actual criteria that they set for safe and effective, namely seven to 15 years of trials going through the animal studies and human studies. But they bypassed all that, and we're supposed to find that as and blindly accept it. Mm. So in that case, those who blindly accept it, they'll have whatever the results are. There'll be a result. And those who don't, they'll maybe get another result. That's all. So we have to make a choice. As far as being hurt, well, I, I have enough service so far. But, and I also understand that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has his, his uh, purpose, that this current world situation is also part of the purpose. Yeah. That modern civilization was advancing in technology and neglecting the spiritual side of life ever increasingly. That their hope was that by advancement of technology, it solved the problems of even birth, death, old age, and disease. And so people were becoming feverish about what the newest advances of technology are. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has lessened that fever to some extent. And therefore, he's created a better atmosphere for preaching. So also with this faith in allopathic medicine, that will have to be seen how safe and effective their drugs are. And people may lose even more faith in you know, the ability of our current leadership to actually guard and safeguard them and to help them progress towards a more peaceful, happy life. So that's opening up more doors for our preaching. At least when we talk about the miseries of material existence, people are not so much neglecting us or passing us off as, as pessimists, but they're, they're observing it themselves directly. So that's good for our preaching. Although we don't want people to suffer, but we, we're not in charge of the material nature or how it works, the laws of nature. And we also understand above the laws of material nature is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So it's not going on by accident. Mm. And if we can organize our preaching to become more, not only efficient, but also more effective, that we develop our preaching with more intelligence and organization, then the result is that we'll be able to introduce to the society a spiritual revolution, with Krishna being the Supreme Personality of Godhead as the center. But a part of that spiritual revolution of art and music will also include medicine in it. To actually show, as in the Vedic culture, people had faith in the Vedic medicine because it worked and they had expertise. The doctors, they were trained to produce the right medicine, the right atmosphere, so that their medicine was safe and effective. It wasn't people die anyhow, they have to get sick because that's part of the material world. But if medicine is, Ayurvedic medicine is properly prepared, if people are willing to follow the proper diet, if they develop the proper consciousness by chanting Hare Krishna, 
and serving Krishna and his representatives, then people will actually see the happy effect of becoming Krishna conscious, and therefore the Vedic knowledge will be glorified, our charyas will be glorified, and ultimately people will become convinced that the source of all of this, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Lord Krishna, they're actually the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Right. Well, Maharaj, thank you. It's We're coming up to two hours now, but it was a wonderful conversation. Do you have any closing statements or anything that you want to impart before we end here? Yeah, luckily we're all eternal. So when Prabhupada wrote me my initiation letter, I was initiated in February, beginning of February 1969. He wrote to me, he said, your name is Prahladananda Swami. I'm sorry, Prahladananda, which means one who is always as cheerful as Prahlad Maharaj in all kinds of critical tests. <laughs> he wrote that, huh? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So this material world is the test for all of us. Yes. Sometimes the test seems less and sometimes it seems more. I mean, no one ever expected such a major test worldwide. Yeah. But things don't happen by accident and we're in the middle of it. So it's an opportunity for us to become more serious about Krishna consciousness. And at the same time, if we want to take care of our health. There's things within our means, you know, proper diet, proper water, proper exercise, proper air, proper relationships with others so that we can become happy and we can have a purpose of life by preaching and maintain our body in a balanced way so that we'll be fit to spread Krishna consciousness and serve Sula Prabhupada and Acharyas and bring out, bring up, help become instruments for the golden age of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Sula Prabhupada said, this movement will go down in history as saving the world in the darkest, in its darkest hours. Yeah. So it seems like it's getting pretty dark. <laughs> so it's yeah. good if our movement steps up and tries to save it. Sure. Gets the credit. Yeah, and and I just want to say I appreciate your outlook and uh I think devotees need to also approach you for health um preventative, you know techniques and things like that your book can you can you tell us about your book again uh just so if well, anyone this is the book i wrote it's called hope this meets you in good health it's a collection of it's available on amazon and uh bonds okay. and noble etc uh it's a collection of everything i could find at that time what Prabhupada said about health okay the stories in the shimad bhagavatam and the chaitanya charitamrita in our literature like Story of Prahlad Maharaj and others. This is a story of of Ritesura and the and the elephant. Sure. And this is a story of Haranikashipu getting it, his body renewed by Lord right. Brahma. Right. So, and then the second part of the book is the articles I wrote for. Uh, our magazine, Hope This Meets You in Good Health, over the years, it dealt with different health modalities, especially uh, Ayurveda. And the introduction is by a famous Ayurvedic doctor named Vasant Lad. And also one of my Ayurvedic doctors from Australia, 
he also wrote the introduction to the to the book very nice okay well, well thank you very much it's a pleasure to talk to you yeah it was a it was very nice talking to you maraj thank you and, and again for our listeners um i'm also looking for devotee doctors or anyone who can speak very um who can who can study what Maharaj is saying as well as what Sita Sita Pati Prabhu had said in their previous in our previous episode and if they have an alternate alternative view on what Maharaj or Sita Pati Prabhu is saying I, so far no one has come forward to kind of try to refute or try to in in a friendly way in a you know all, this is all about uh, you know, doing things in a friendly Vaishnav like way. And I'd like to hear the perspective if there is any other sp perspective from what Maharaj and Sita Padi Prabhu is saying. But so far, no one has come forward, and I'm I, I'm a little discouraged in that way. I hope someone comes forward so we can have a, a, a good conversation, get the full picture on, on things, of course. So um, thank you. That's episode. Uh, uh, so this is going to be, I think, 62 or something like that of the late morning program. Maraj, please stay on. I'm going to just uh, end the recording. I just like to make one last thing. Anything sure. I say which is correct is all by Shubhra's mercy. And everything I said that was wrong is all because of my fallen state of consciousness. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, Maharaj. I will turn off the recording. Hare Krishna, everyone. Hare Krishna. Thank you again, Maharaj. Thank you. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.